In this next hour, we hear about the crisis in Wisconsin's K-12 education funding. How can Dane County communities deal with declining financial support, changing demographics, and attacks on the concept of public education? We asked three people who happen to know a lot about K-12 education in Wisconsin to address these questions. Jeff Pertle is the Senior Policy Advisor for the Department of Public Instruction, and he's the District 17 Supervisor on the Dane County Board. Julie Mead is Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis at UW-Madison. And Heather Dubois-Borinan is Executive Director of the Wisconsin Public Education Network. The talk took place on October 4, 2017, and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. But first, we hear from League member Janine Edwards, who introduces the three guests. We have three excellent speakers uh, about education tonight. I'm sure many of you know them or have heard them uh, separately or perhaps together. Uh, Jeff Pertle is our first speaker. He is the Senior Policy Advisor to State Superintendent Tony Evers. He works primarily on fiscal and education policy issues. Jeff will give us an overview of the changing demographics in our state and education finances. Our second speaker is Dr. Julie Fisher Mead. She is professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis here at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Dr. Mead joined the UW-Madison faculty in 1999. She researches and teaches about topics related to education law. Her research centers on legal issues related to special education and legal issues raised by various forms of school choice, including charter schools and vouchers. Dr. Mead's talk will focus on the impact of voucher schools on public school finances. <clears throat> Our third speaker is Heather Dubois-Borinan, who is the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Public Education Network, WPEN. In 2016 and 17, Heather led the statewide effort advocating for increased funding for Wisconsin's public schools in the state budget. In 2016, the Wisconsin Education Association Council, WEAC, named Heather and the WPEN Friend of Education. Heather will tell us of the many things we can do, action plans, to support public education. Back in 2001, just before two planes crash into the towers, before a plane hits down in the Pentagon and the world really kind of changes forever, We'd lived in this old world for a while where about 21% of our kids had been eligible for free and reduced price lunch, and it had been that way for a while. 9-11 happens, and in the decade that sort of follows leading up to the Great Recession, there's a pretty massive transformation in the economy that happens in real people's lives. This happens in Wisconsin, it happens all across the country, and what we see happening is a doubling of our free and reduced price lunch rate. It goes from 21% to 43%, and it basically hovers there every year after. Okay, so in one decade, the number of low-income kids basically doubled. Particularly in the northern parts of Wisconsin and the central band are the areas that are hardest hit. So a couple of things are happening here. One is 
you know, folks are struggling. And Pew Charitable Trust did a study. It said one in three Americans in the Great Recession fell out of the middle class. One in three. So maybe dad had a healthcare crisis, maybe mom lost her job, but folks that we would traditionally think of as middle class started sliding backwards. The other thing we see is wages aren't keeping up with costs, and so people's ability, the jobs that used to be family-supporting jobs before, simply don't keep pace with the cost of life anymore. So big economic changes happening all across the country. The other thing that's going on in that time period is back in 2001, about one out of every three of our school districts were declining in enrollment. By 2012, two-thirds of our school districts are in declining enrollment. But over the course of this time, we have about the same number of kids. There's about a million kids in Wisconsin. So I want you to think of enrollment like a balloon, all right? If I take two-thirds of it and I squeeze it and make it smaller, what has to happen to that other third? It gets big, right? So our winners, those are the areas of growing enrollment over time. And the other areas, those are all the areas in decline. So today, 75% of our kids are in just 30% of our school districts. Or think about it the other way. A quarter of our kids are spread across the other 70% of the school districts. Right? So what that means is most school districts are small and rural. Over half our districts have fewer than 1,000 kids. That would be smaller than the high school I went to. 80% of our school districts have fewer than 3,000 kids. And then we have a handful of larger suburban and a couple large urban districts. But when we think about kind of how we distribute resources and what the map looks like, we have a lot of districts that are very small, and we have a couple districts that are very big with most of our kids, right? So if you think of things on a district level, the map looks very different than on a kid level. Does that make sense? Okay. This also impacts political representation if you think about it. 70% of the school districts roughly are represented by Republicans, but about 55% of the kids are represented by Democrats. And that's a function of most of the students are located in the urban centers and some of the suburban centers versus the rurals, right? So the district and the student math feels different. And obviously that impacts how representation works. When you put the two together, you start to see a relationship. Here's our declining enrollment. Here's our areas of greatest poverty. So two things are probably going on in this time period, okay? So one is that folks who have an ability to move and seek better jobs are leaving. They go into those urban centers, they go into the suburban places where there's better jobs or high paying jobs. The other thing that's happening is Johnny or Susie or Enrique or Jose or whatever the name of the student you want to pick is, who live in some of these areas are growing up, they're having great opportunities, and then they go to technical college or the university or a job, but you know what they're not doing? They're not going back home, and they're not staying. If I put DHS's map up there on population, you would see that all of these areas that are declining in enrollment and growing in poverty are also aging counties. They're graying communities. So the folks that are left are earning less with fewer people, and they're older populations in general. Now, if we look at our winners, we see places like Eau Claire and Menominee, we see La Crosse and Wausau and Green Bay and Sheboygan and Manitowoc and Madison and Kenosha and Racine a little bit, the outer parts. What do all those places have in common? Universities, like the universities, right? We're in Madison, big fans here, right? Okay, so the universities, 
There are economic clusters. There's big job producing opportunities. There are large firms that employ lots of people. Anything else that might connect those communities? Literally? Roads and internet, right? So if I want to go from place to place, it turns out being attached to the transportation grid is pretty much a guarantee of me being a winner. You want to think about the future of the economy, you want to think about the future of opportunity, and you look at where our university clusters, economic centers are, where our transportation grid is, and I can pretty much tell you which communities are going to thrive and which ones are going to struggle. So why is this important to us? I mean, it's neat, it's demographic, the maps are fancy, but what does that tell us? And our challenge is, is that the Wisconsin Constitution says that every child's entitled to a free and appropriate public education. And then this super important thing happens. There's a period. There's not a comma that says, if you happen to live in a place that's really close to a free freeway, or if you happen to live in a community that can afford to pass a referenda, or if, 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 if. There aren't any ifs. The Constitution just says every kid's supposed to get a free and appropriate public education. So when we think about the great public policy challenges of our lifetime, how do we provide education? How do we deal with you know, access to health care? How do we provide meaningful opportunities for people all across Wisconsin? These maps tell you a story about the biggest and most pressing issues our policymakers should be thinking about. And it really is a function of where people are going to be and how we create opportunity for them. So the other thing that's going on is that the faces of Wisconsin are changing. Okay, so about 12% of Wisconsin's adult population would identify as folks of color, non-white. Okay? Nationally, that's about 38%. So Wisconsin is less diverse than the rest of the country. That's probably not a surprise to anybody here. Wisconsin and the Midwest in general diversify later than the rest of the country, and part of that is a function of major migration patterns like the Great Migration Northward. Folks would go up and they moved to places like Indianapolis and Pittsburgh. They went to Cleveland. And there is a, I don't know, it's a little shanty town a little south of Wisconsin called Chicago that people spent a lot of time in. It's kind of passe, but it happened. And so when Wisconsin started to diversify, it looks a little different. It happens a little bit later. So while 12% of the adult population in Wisconsin are adults of color, 28% of our kids in school are kids of color. So our school population is twice as diverse as the rest of the state. Now, I don't want to give anything away here, but those kids, they will be the next generation of adults. So when we think about what that means for us, okay, we think about Wisconsin as a state that historically is high achieving. Nation leader in graduation rates, high ACT scores, best in the Midwest on AP, and we have the largest and most pervasive achievement gap in the country. Period. Stop. That is a moral challenge for us. That is a social challenge for us. But it's also a huge economic challenge for us. I don't want to give it away, but I'm 38. Don't tell anyone. Someday I would like to retire, sooner rather than later. And when I do, there are going to be fewer people in the workforce relative to me than there are today. Right, the way this works, you all know this, right? We're paying for the folks that are retired now. Our kids are going to pay for us. This is this neat intergenerational thing we have going on. And so you got to wonder if the kids that come behind us are fewer in number, I mean greater overall, but relative to retirees, and they are less productive and earn less because they're more diverse and didn't do as well in school, who do you think is going to struggle in that scenario? Them for sure, 
but me. I'm dependent on their success in so many different ways because we're deeply connected in how all this works across generations. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Crisis in Wisconsin's K-12 Education Funding. We're talking about the declining financial support, changing demographics, and the attacks on the concept of public education with speakers Jeff Pertle, Julie Mead, and Heather dubois Borinan. So when we think about what this is going to mean for us and who we are, about where all those kids live. So 28% of the kids in our public schools in Wisconsin might be kids of color, but not every school district looks that way. And what this map is doing, it's layering over different racial groups, Asian, Black, Latino or Hispanic, and Native American or American Indian, and where those kids live. Okay. So the first thing you're going to notice is our Asian students tend to be clustered in particular areas, partially because Wisconsin is among refugee states, so we have large concentrations of particularly Hmong Asian students in Wausau, in the Greater Madison area, and a few others. If you notice, the black students are largely concentrated in just six particular areas. 90% of African Americans in Wisconsin are found in six counties. There are 72 counties in Wisconsin. 90% of the black people live in these six. So if you want to have a conversation about racial disparities or the achievement gap, the black-white achievement gap, we need to be spending our time in Milwaukee, in Dane, Racine, Kenosha, Rock, and Waukesha. And Dane County has some of the largest racial disparities in the state, a state known for its disparities in general. Now that can be a little misleading. If you look at the achievement gap between Madison and Milwaukee, the achievement gap, black-white achievement gap in Madison is often bigger than the black-white achievement gap in Milwaukee. But part of that is because all students do better in Madison than they do in Milwaukee. So in the sense that the gap is bigger here, performance is lower in Milwaukee. So when we want to close gaps, we want to do two things. We don't want to close gaps by having students do worse. Right? That, that does not, that isn't, I mean, it would close the gap. That would not meet our goals. So we want to run, you might want a tie that's going to rise all the boats and still close those achievement gaps. So the other thing we notice is our Native American students are particularly, uh, they're tied to reservations largely in the north, whereas our Latino or Hispanic students, those are not exactly the same thing. One's a linguistic group, one's a geographic group, but for the moment, let's group them together, are spread more diversely throughout the state. So it's going to be different no matter where you are. Some districts are going to be very diverse, others are not going to be. Now, if I were to ask you a question about what you thought the diversity, how, what percentage of students in the Madison School District are kids of color, and I made you base that decision on this room, <laughs> what would you tell me? We would be like 98% white, right? Presumably. And of the kids in the Madison School District do you think are kids of color? Oh, see, everyone's so educated here, it's nice. About 55%, give or take, right? If I walk down the streets of the Capitol, if I'm on State Street, if I'm in my neighborhood, that is not my daily experience. Those are the kids that are going to lead our community very shortly. Things for us to think about. So how does this tie together on how we spend our money? Well, here's the thing. I'm going to tell you two great secrets. Money will not solve all of our problems, but sure would help a lot. It turns out when people have resources, they like to spend them educating their kids. 
They buy nice houses in districts that have good schools. They write big checks to send their kids to fancy universities because they believe that those resources will benefit their kids. I tend to take them at their word and think that investing in our kids is a pretty good idea. So, I'm going to explain to you how school finance works. And when we're done in the next five minutes, you will all know more than maybe five people on the planet. Ready? You will also all be qualified to serve in the legislature. <laughs> Outcomes might be different if you were in charge, though. Back in the day, we came up with this really clever idea. There were three legs. There was a stool. It's a complicated conversation, yada, yada, yada. But one of the things that's unique about American education is that, and one of the reasons, frankly, we have school boards is because we use the local property tax to fund our schools. That's really where local control comes from. We would tax locally, the board would make decisions, and we would raise resources, and that's how it worked. If you go to Europe, if you go to South America, very different systems, often centralized, lots of control. Revenue limits is a way to mitigate that. Basically what it says is, we're gonna limit how much taxing you can do on a per kid basis. So it's not exactly the same thing as spending, but for our class's purposes, we're gonna treat them as if they're the same. So we got a revenue limit. Then the state's going to give you some school aid. And what that basically does is it buys down your property taxes. All right? So if you spend 10000 bucks a kid and the state gives you $6,000 in aid, then $4,000 is going to go on the property tax. It's seventh grade algebra. That's the big secret. You don't actually have to know anything more than a seventh grader to do school finance. Now, we got a couple of things outside the revenue limit. There's this magical per pupil aid they came up with. It's convoluted, but it is a special categorical aid, but everybody gets the same amount. That is weird. Categorical aids, generally speaking, are for particular purposes. It's for transportation, it's for students with special needs, it's for English language learners. They are targeted investments based on your kids. The per pupil aid is the sort of exception to that. It's just sort of cash payments to schools on a per kid basis. Then we also get federal funds. Overwhelmingly, most of the federal funds are either tied to special education or they're tied to NCLB, it's now called ESSA, but basically the idea is either through poverty or your status as a migrant or some funds for teachers, but they're mostly tied in a formula that generally favors schools of greater poverty get more money than schools that are well off on the federal side. That is different than how the state money works. And then there's some other revenue. You sell some candy bars, which we don't let you do anymore, so you sell some mineral water or whatever it is that you're allowed to do these days kids don't buy it and then you know you'll have some nickels in a jar somewhere that's your other revenues it's great so back in 1993-94 they thought this revenue limit was going to be a great idea and each year it went up a little bit started at 200 it went to 204 this is the change in the revenue limit so this is how much more money you are going to get to spend on your kids so if you think about you're roughly spending 10,000 bucks a kid inflation is about two percent then $200 is about right. It, it best, it keeps it even. Now, it turns out that costs in schools are a little higher than inflation, but, you know, eh, math. So every year it's going up, basically, with inflation, and things are going nice. And then I remember this year, it's 2008, 2009, the economy has collapsed. Governor Doyle was in office. President Obama releases all this fiscal stabilization fund money to states, and he called on all the education advocates, Governor Doyle did, and he's like, guys, I need you to be with me. 
I can only do 200 bucks a kid, so the 275 you were expecting. I know that's disappointing, but we're in this economic crisis. This is what we got to do. And we all went, terrible, you betrayed us, the children. We were angry, we were upset, we talked about priorities, we grumbled, and we had just no idea what was about to happen, right? Just no clue. So we get 200, we get 200, life was still good, and then the administration changes and the world is just different. Period, stop. Act 10 passes, there's a negative 5.5% cut in revenue limits for the first time. It's averaging probably about 500 bucks a kid, but for some districts it's up to 1,000, it just depends on what you were spending, and it's just never the same again. So if you look at the years after, uh, sometimes it goes up a little, sometimes it goes more, it's kind of all over the place. And my good friend Chris Thiel, who works for Milwaukee Public Schools, likes to call the era before Act 10 regular broken, right? Because we used to talk about how broken the school finance system is, and now we've got new broken, or really broken. And it just doesn't really function like a school finance system anymore. At least in the old world, it was kind of predictable. We knew we were getting a little less money than we needed, but it had some stability and structure. And now it just kind of depends on how much cash is available in any given year. Right, we shake the cash and we go, we can buy kids lunch this year. Great. Maybe not what we envisioned. The other thing is this all started back here with this two-thirds. So this is state funding. This is the aid side. So this isn't the spending side. But back when this started, there was promise that they were going to fund two-thirds the cost of schools. And we spent just under 33% of the state general fund on education. Okay? And then by the time we're in 2003, we're up to 43 cents of every dollar of the state general fund is being spent on education. And by the time we're done here, we're back to 32.4. Everything old is new again. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Crisis in Wisconsin's K-12 Education Funding. We're talking about the declining financial support, changing demographics, and the attacks on the concept of public education. With speakers Jeff Pertle, Julie Mead, and Heather Dubois-Borinan. We spend money, but as a share of where we spend our dollars, if you think of that as a, an, uh, a symbol of our priorities, we're kind of back to where we started. And then the last two thoughts I'll leave you with is if we look at our funding for special education and bilingual education, we basically had flat funding for a decade. So as cost goes up, if you give the same amount of money, the share that you're spending is going down, right? Because math, we're all fans of math here. So we used to give 36 cents on the dollar for special education, it's down to 27. Bilingual was a meager 18 cents on the dollar, and now we're down to eight. I mean, I mean, the Constitution basically says your school finance system is constitutional as long as you're taking care of your low-income students, your students with special needs, and your English language learners. I'm not sure eight cents on the dollar is going to get you there. But have no fear. Because it turns out, when people cut funding for schools, folks get mad about that. They go to the ballot box, and they go, not on my watch. So in this whole area of revenue limits, prior to when we hit 2011, passing a referenda to be able to spend more money was roughly a 50-50 proposition. In the years since 2011, it is an 80-20 proposition. That is a staggering mathematical change in the probability of passing a referenda. 
Today, half of school districts, half, have passed a referenda since Act 10 passed. About 80% of referenda are in our rural school districts, and there's been a huge shift from building project referenda. We still do some of that, for sure, but it probably was two-thirds of the referenda before. Now it's about a third. Everything else is operating, which means school districts are going to referenda to keep the lights on. And if you add up all the tax increases from the referenda, and you look at what would have happened if the legislature had kind of just kept funding schools, we basically paid their tap. The problem with this is, is that some of you will pass a referenda and some of you won't. And I don't remember the provision in the Constitution that said every child gets a free and appropriate public education as long as their voters vote for it. That wasn't one of the things that was in there. It was supposed to be a guarantee. So, leaves you with some thoughts. I think the big picture one is this. There are big changes that are going on in our state. Big, huge moral and ethical questions, big policy questions, and in the end, a couple things have happened. Folks have mobilized to make change, and they've done meaningful and important things to improve opportunities for students. We shouldn't forget that. But we have to engage our policymakers in the biggest questions of the day, which is how are we going to fund our schools, and how are we going to prepare them, our educators, our school system, to meet the needs of the next generation of students. They're going to look different, they're going to have different needs, and if we don't meet those, we will suffer the consequences. Our second speaker is Dr. Julie Fisher-Mead. She is professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis here at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Dr. Mead joined the UW-Madison faculty in 1999. She researches and teaches about topics related to education law. Her research centers on legal issues related to special education and legal issues raised by various forms of school choice, including charter schools and vouchers. Dr. Mead's talk will focus on the impact of voucher schools on public school finances. What I was asked to talk about is a little bit of um, understanding how school choice impacts all of that. And I'm going to start in a rather odd place because I'm not going to talk about directly about school choice, but I want to remind us all about something really important, and that's what, in fact, is public about public education. But sometimes when you hear people talking, they'll talk about public funding as if the only matter is dollars. The only issue is taxes. But I would submit that it's a whole lot more. It's about the public purpose that education serves. Like Jeff, I want people to be able to take care of me when I, I'm older. Um, public funding, of course, is part of it. Public access means we do take everybody, right? There is no exception that some kids have a right to an education and some kids do not. Public accountability to communities, and that's true, of course, at all levels. And the primary way that we keep folks accountable really is through voting at all levels of government. And then public curriculum. We decide collectively what it means to be an educated person and how someone should be educated. So in this same period of time, um, in Wisconsin, we actually started in the 90s, but then accelerated it after 2011. 
Um, we have been engaged in what sometimes is called privatization or a movement toward other forms of education. And there are two predominant models. One is called the charter school model and the other vouchers or a voucher program. I'm going to focus my uh, comments tonight on the voucher side of things. So what are the main differences between the two? Well, the biggest difference is that voucher programs, by definition, provide some kind of public subsidy for a child to go to a private school. So that school, even though it's retaining or keeping public money, is privately operated and privately run. A charter school is a specialized form of public school. Now, because charter schools are creatures of the state, if you will, meaning that what is a charter school depends on what a state says a charter school is, charter schools vary widely from state to state to state. And even within a state, even within our state, there are different kinds of charter schools. Some are more like private schools, some are more like public schools. So it kind of, when you get into charter land, you do a lot of talking about, well, it depends, it depends, it depends, depends on a whole host of things. In general, though, in terms of some of the big laws that we think about, um, charter schools may be relieved from some state laws, but they're not relieved from federal laws. Voucher schools or the private schools that participated in a voucher program, the same laws that apply to public schools do not apply or apply very differently in a much lesser extent to those private schools. And in terms of federal law, for the most part, federal law doesn't apply in those private schools schools, even if they're getting a voucher. Um, this shows you the proliferation of voucher programs across the country. So prior to 1990, we had two tiny programs, and they're in um, Vermont and Maine. And those were in uh, what they called town tuitioning programs. So they were very rural parts of the state that, frankly, didn't have enough kids to warrant making a school for those kids. And so they would collect tax dollars then to give a voucher for the kids to go to a neighboring school district and later a private school as long as that school wasn't religious. In 1990, beginning right here in the state of Wisconsin with the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, we added voucher programs. And you can see in that next decade then, 90 to uh, 99, there were just a, a few, four states had some kind of voucher or voucher-like program. 2000 and to 2009, the next decade, you see uh, a an expansion of the number of voucher or voucher-like programs. And then, of course, since 2010, we've seen a, a proliferation of those programs across the country. They come in various forms. Sometimes they serve just a city. Sometimes they serve a special population, just kids with disabilities, for example. Sometimes they are statewide. So it, it really depends, again, on the state and what they've elected to do. There are, are three general types, well, actually four altogether, but um, of kinds of voucher and voucher-like programs. And here in Wisconsin, we have four of the first kind of the traditional vouchers, if you will. And as Ed explains, what that means is a state statute sets an amount of money, a voucher is worth X, and then the eligible student can take that voucher to the private school of their choice to pay for tuition. We have um, four of those programs, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, the Racine Parental Choice Program, the Wisconsin or statewide Parental Choice Program, which would affect Madison and the uh, districts near here. And then um, the newest one is the uh, Special Needs Scholarship Program. And if you're curious, the years are 1990, 
2015. The next kind is a tax credit or tax uh, deduction programs. Um, this one, taxpayers may claim either a tax credit or a tax deduction for all or part of educational expenses. We have the private school tuition tax deduction. Um, it's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar match, so you can take up to $4,000 uh, per student in grades K through 8. It's not, it's not going to reduce your taxes by $4,000. There's a formula, but it does result in a tax reduction. There are the two newest kinds, and if I were to go back and to tag these on that map I showed you, you'd see that these two kinds are the ones that are the most um, recent voucher programs across the country. And both of them, interestingly enough, started in Arizona. And the first one is a tax credit scholarship program. I have a friend who calls this a money laundering approach. Um, because what they do is imagine they have tax liability of, for easy numbers, $1,000. And so that means you have to pay your $1,000 to the state, right? And that goes in the state coffers. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Crisis in Wisconsin's K-12 Education Funding. We're talking about the declining financial support, changing demographics, and the attacks on the concept of public education with speakers Jeff Pertle, Julie Mead, and Heather dubois Boynan. Well, in a traditional pro voucher program, you would do that. The state legislature then would say, well, some of that money is now going to be spent on a voucher. In a tax credit scholarship program, what they do is say, okay, that $1,000 of tax liability you can, if you elect to, divert a portion of that into this tax credit scholarship program. You don't get the choice of keeping that money in your pocket. You either get to divert some of it to the tax credit scholarship program or pay it to the state, but you can't, do, you, you can't keep it. And once it's in that tax credit scholarship program, that scholarship organization then pays for the vouchers. So it's still state, you know, money that was collected for the purposes of taxes or would have been, but then gets diverted into this tax credit scholarship program. We don't have one of those. And then the newest kind is what's called an education savings account. There was a little bit of noise about perhaps introducing one of those in this last biennium, but it didn't happen. And what that generally does in the states that have them is they say, well, we're going to take the amount of state aid that would have followed this child into a public school if the child were enrolled in a public school, and we're going to give it to the parents in the form of this savings account, and the parents can use it to fund educational expenses, the most predominant of which is tuition to a private school. But in some states, that also allows a subsidy for homeschool children. And um, maybe tutoring expenses and a variety of other things. So it, again, all of these are creatures of the state legislature, so you really have to dig into the kind of the nitty-gritty of what the state said is going to happen and how it's eligible or not, or how you're eligible or not. Of course, a lot of this in terms of talking about it is that um, not only has this been happening in the states, but with the election of President Trump, it's now being discussed as part of a federal approach to educational educational approaches. Um, right now, and, and he did introduce uh, an expansion of both charters and, and creation of a voucher program in his uh, so-called skinny budget uh, last spring. But if the news reports are accurate, um, in terms of budget discussions, those programs have not survived that, at least not yet. But you know, we're not, we don't have a federal budget yet, so we'll have to wait and see. 
I thought it would be important for you to see exactly how our programs are, are working in terms of the amount and cost. So I'll give you some quick data. This is data from a year ago. So we should very shortly have this year's data, but I don't yet have it. So Milwaukee is 121, just under or just over 28,000 kids. If it were a district, it would now be the second largest. It surpassed Madison last year. It costs the state approximately $203 million, almost 2,204. And just for clarity's sake, that's one year. So that's for one school year. There's a formula, I won't go into it, and that's going to change a little bit every day, but we fund it with a combination of reducing state aid to MPS and general purpose revenues. And the other thing to know, and I should um, back up uh, of the voucher amounts, uh, a couple of things to know about the voucher amounts. The voucher amounts are based on poverty, so um, <laughs> depending on how you view it. So in order to be eligible for a voucher in Milwaukee, the family has to make no more, may make no more than 300% of the federal poverty level, which, by the way, that's more than the median income of a family in Wisconsin. Um, so 300% of the federal poverty level for the first year only. So once you're eligible for a voucher, however old that child is, the child can stay in the voucher program with public subsidy until they graduate from high school, even if the family's fortunes change. So if they win the lottery in you know, the year the child is a kindergartner, it doesn't matter. The child remains eligible for the voucher for the remainder of their educational career. This is data from the um, public policy forum in Milwaukee. Um, actually, so this is uh, data from, uh, uh, from 2015. I did a similar study a couple of years earlier. So this is a pattern that is pretty um, stable. This is uh, continuing. Anyone who looks at this finds the same thing. <clears throat> and that's the majority of schools in Milwaukee that participate in the voucher program are highly dependent on that public subsidy or that public voucher. 22 schools, as it says there, are 100% voucher enrollments. In other words, the school is a private school, but no child attends by virtue of private money. They all attend by virtue of public money. Another 47 are 90 to 99.9% .9 voucher enrolled. Again, meaning only a very few kids attend by virtue of private money, either in terms of their parents paying tuition or some private scholarship. The original law, when it was passed in 1990, said that the school had to be more privately funded than publicly funded, and only 22 schools would meet that metric if it were still in place. It is no longer. So here's Racine. Eligibility is the same as Milwaukee in terms of um, the poverty level, 300% of poverty. The voucher amounts are the same, so this is true in Milwaukee as well, 7,323. Are we adding the 217 this year or for this year? So it'll actually it'll go up $217. Something that nobody ever explained to me, the per pupil aid is going up $200 for $204. $200 this year, $204 the second year. But for the voucher program, $217 each year. Now, I know I may sound like I'm being picky here, but why is there a difference? You know, why didn't they may raise it the same for the vouchers? Why do they get just a little bit more? I don't know, but they do. They get just a little bit more. Um, as you can see, uh, grades 9 through 12, the voucher is a little bit bigger. So it'll go over $8,000 this time. So last year, 
Um, we had about 2,500 kids participate in the Racine program, and it cost about $18.3 million. The statewide program, which is limited in enrollment in terms of how many, um, this year it will be 220% of the federal poverty level. Last year it was 185%. Again, first year of eligibility only. Same voucher amounts, although add 217. And then uh, about 3,000 kids, the vast majority of whom were previous, previously enrolled in, in private schools. In other words, they're not sector switchers. They are kids who are already in private schools, and um, uh, now we just changed who pays the bill. Special needs scholarship program, that eligibility has no income limit. You just have to have been a child with a disability, and actually the changes we just made have now erased many of those requirements as well. $12,000 a student last year, it's now gone up, where they can get more than $12,000 a student, depending on what they're receiving. As you can see there, last year about 206 kids, 2.4 million. The grand total then for the voucher programs alone in the state of Wisconsin last year was 247 million. The tax credit um, program that I mentioned that we have adds another 12 million. So in terms of subsidies for private education, the Wisconsin taxpayer spent uh, nearly $260 million on that last year. At the same time, we were still 12.7% below where we were in 2008 in terms of spending on uh, public education. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Crisis in Wisconsin's K-12 Education Funding. We're talking about the declining financial support, changing demographics, and the attacks on the concept of public education with speakers Jeff Pirtle, Julie Mead, and Heather dubois Boynan. So I, I was asked to talk on uh, what the voucher research shows. So there's a set of achievement studies, and we did a, a number of them are here in Milwaukee, and whether it's true in Milwaukee or otherwise, what we have found is that there aren't any consistent differences. So if we compare the performance of kids in, that have used a voucher with similarly situated kids who are in public schools, is there a difference? Now, part of the reason this is an important question is because the argument for using vouchers was to make education better, right? So did it make education better? Um, in fact, over 10 years of study in Milwaukee, no consistent differences. This has been found in other studies of both New York, Washington, D.C., Dayton, Ohio, and so forth. New York is a pub privately funded voucher program. Um, the, the theory has not translated into performance changes, so the most consistent pattern actually is that vouchers have no consistently significant impact. Recently, we've had kind of a shock to the system. So since that article was written, we've had a number of studies in statewide voucher programs that have shown not just a wash, no difference between the kids in the public schools and the kids in the private schools, but in fact, that the kids in the private schools did worse. So they found negative effects. Um, this is pretty unusual in educational research. We don't usually find negative effects. But it happened in Indiana, it happened in Ohio, it happened in Louisiana in not one, but two studies, and it happened in D.C. 
There's since been, you know, for fairness sakes, there's since been a new study out of Indiana that said that after about two to three years, the kids caught up, back up to where they were before. Um, but that particular issue, is, of course, means you're kind of gambling. Is my kid going to catch up or is my kid not? There's another set of studies called the attainment studies, um, again, and one done here in Wisconsin that showed that students exposed to a voucher were um, more likely to attend college. But if you look closely in that study, you'll find some pretty significant limitations that are listed there. Um, they only had 44% of the kids that started schools at the end, uh, that started the study that they could find at the end. It measured exposure. In other words, they, they marked where the kids started high school, not where they finished. So if they started school in a voucher school but transferred to a public school, they were still counted in the voucher population and vice versa. And then, of course, there are very, relatively speaking, few high schools participate in the program at all. But even their study uh, concludes by saying, um, the results nonetheless do not support a comprehensive conclusion that the Milwaukee voucher program necessarily provides a better learning environment. So all of that together, I think this uh, Mike, Mark Donarski, who did um, the, one of the, the negative voucher studies that I mentioned, summed it up fairly well, is that um, basically the decision is really complex. If you gave, take a risk, they might be more likely to graduate and might be more likely to go on to college, but you have to take a leap of faith eventually, maybe in 13 years, it will all work out, as he says. And of course, I think we have to ask ourselves when you put those studies then in context, is that, is what we're purchasing, because what we're purchasing with, if you will, is publicness. Are we willing to trade public purpose, public funding, public access, public accountability, and public curriculum for those results? Our third speaker is Heather Dubois-Borinon, who is the executive director of the Wisconsin Public Education Network, WPEN. In 2016 and 17, Heather led the statewide effort advocating for increased funding for Wisconsin's public schools in the state budget. In 2016, the Wisconsin Education Association Council, WEAC, named Heather and the WPEN Friend of Education. Heather will tell us of the many things we can do, action plans, to support public education. My kids, Todd and Leela, go to Sun Prairie Public Schools, and we love Sun Prairie Public Schools. My kids are thriving there. All of our relationships in the community have kind of stemmed out of our contact with the school and who we've met and who we know and how we've kind of made our lives for ourselves there. But Jeff said a little something earlier about winners and losers in school districts in Wisconsin. And some of you may know that was Sun Prairie is the largest and fastest, the, the fastest growing school district in the state right now. And our schools have all the resources they need. This is the first year ever in the history of our district that we're like at our revenue cap and our, our schools are thriving, our kids are thriving. But since 2011, I've been scared as a parent, scared by the biggest cuts to public education in history, 
Scared by things like teachers digging deep into their own pockets to buy food for kids. Scared by things like kids crying over standardized tests while adults are discussing how the educators are going to be held accountable for that kid's test scores. Scared by attending hearings and seeing legislators openly scoffing at people who are testifying at those hearings. Scared by all of the money that's going in to programs that are funding policy that's having a direct negative impact on the vast majority of kids in, in our schools. And scared, quite frankly, after attending excellent lectures like the two we just heard that kind of make me aware of the enormity of the actual crisis before us and make me feel like just so small in the face of it. And so I felt that way for a long time and have found some hope in something Mr. Rogers used to say. Some of you will remember this. He used to tell the story about how when he was a kid, he was scared, something bad would happen in the news. His mom would say, look for the helpers. Look for the police, the firefighters, regular people doing good things for others. There's always someone there helping, and those people always outnumber everybody else. And you can take some hope in that. And so I think about our current crisis, and I look around at the helpers, and I see many of them in this room, and I start to feel hope. And I think there are so many more people who care about this issue than there are people who are like actively working against it, that if we came together and did something about it, maybe we could make a difference. Because the vast majority of us love our public schools like we do, and we know there's something that can be done. So I'm here today to kind of help you see where some of that hope is, is being found in, around the state and see where you can maybe think of yourself as one of the potential helpers by tapping into that or supporting the people who are, who are doing that work. Because I'm not just here because my two kids are in public schools. I'm here because I believe, like many of you do, that every single kid in this state deserves an equally excellent public school. No exceptions. Not one exception. It shouldn't matter if your parents are rich or poor. It shouldn't matter what city you live in. It shouldn't matter if you have special needs. Every kid should have equal opportunity to succeed. That's it. That's, that's how I got connected to the people at Wisconsin Public Education Network. And that's why we believe very deeply in the constitutional demand that Jeff mentioned a couple of times to make sure that we are providing a uniform education for all kids and that we are making sure that every single kid who comes through our, through our doors is, is well served. Investing in a system of haves and haves nots is never going to achieve that result and the writing's on the wall, people know it. So our network tries to unite people who share this concern and give them ways to take action locally by being connected to to the information, resources, and motivation that they need to get, to get the work they need to do done. So we try to tap into that energy around the state that we see through referenda efforts, through small groups of people who have concerns about their local schools and the direction that they're headed. These are all grassroots, nonpartisan, education-only advocacy teams around Wisconsin that are connected through our network and that are working for local level change. These groups are getting organized. They're holding trainings and workshops and events like this that are turning out people who otherwise would never thought they'd sit through a boring lecture on school funding because they know how important it is. 
right? And they're ready to take action on that. So we're investing a lot of resources and energy into just making sure that what resources are out there that help us understand how state and national and global issues impact our local schools are readily available and that we can help help kind of take this complex problem and have it make sense where you live. What do, what do cuts mean here? And how can I find my voice and speak out to reach a wider audience and to connect with them in a way that matters so that we're speaking as one, we're going public with our own stories, we're standing up for public schools, and we're sending a message that says, enough, right? We aren't going to tolerate a disinvestment in the vast majority of our kids because the future of everyone depends on it. So we have a pretty simple philosophy, and it's basically this. People who know and care the most about what's going on in our schools, parents, educators, administrators, school board members, people like Jeff, people like Julie, these are the people who should be heard the loudest and respected the most by decision makers. And I would like to see a show of hands for those who think that's already the case. Yeah, that's not what we have right now. And I was like, maybe I'm naive, but I was shocked when I found out the extent to which that's true. I was shocked when I found out how, even as like kind of a novice person who cares about this, I knew a lot more than some legislators did about how school funding worked. I knew a lot more than a lot of people did just from kind of a cursory examination of the problem. So there's like this knowledge gap that we have to fill. And I think we can fill it with, with our passion and our energy because we know that public opinion is on our side. These referendums passing at massive rates, 80% of people polled this spring said they wanted to see school funding increased. What? That, the, that figure has never been this high. And yet, it's not cut and dry. There's this weird disconnect. There's this kind of, my schools are great, but schools in general, I don't know, right? So this national chart here shows that while 55% of people would give their own school an A or a B, only 25% would give America's school, public schools as a whole that grade. So what's that all about? And what do we do to kind of combat the negative message? So on the one hand, we have this like rhetorical philosophical problem that's partly a political problem, right? There's like a machine out there that's kind of generating negative information. We often only hear the bad stories. The good stories don't get a, a lot of air and so on. But then on the other hand, we have a very real material problem. We're $709 million per year below 2009 funding levels. That's a $2.6 billion decrease in cumulative funding since 2011. That's a huge problem. In addition to this, there are all these policy issues that crop up all the time that kind of distract us for, and make us worry about what's next for kids. Are there going to be more limits placed on referenda so we can't even raise taxes on ourselves anymore to, if our schools need funding? Are there going to be guns in schools? What's happening at the federal level? What, why do they care what bathrooms our kids are using? Like, do we have local control at all anymore? All of these things are kind of in the mix and very confusing. And one of the things we try to do is tap into what matters the most? What are people most concerned about? And how can we communicate this, this information in a credible way so that people know where opportunities for taking action are and speak in a clear and united voice on those things? These problems often distract us from some of the very real challenges facing our schools. Things like 
teacher shortages, morale in the schools, testing and accountability, local or state level conflicts that are getting in the way of building relationships, special education funding, which been, has been flat for 10 years, um, urban and rural issues. I mean, all of these things are kind of on top of and in tandem with all of these other other issues, and it can be extremely overwhelming to kind of try to tap into that and see, well, how does it impact our kids? So we try to make things simple, right? We don't have to be policy experts. I didn't sign up to be a policy expert. I have no desire to be one. But I can articulate what our schools need. And the very first thing they need is fair funding, right? It, I don't have to have a PhD in anything to know that the funding formula is broken. It's not fair. It's serving some districts well and some districts very poorly. We, we need to fix that. What is democracy if it's not local control of local schools? We should not have any bills being passed that violate that kind of sacred trust of the people to establish their own schools. People want a voice in decision making. I want my voice to matter. If I testify on something, I want the person who's, who has the power to make a decision on that to be listening to me, and I want my voice to matter. How can I make my voice matter more? When all of us speak up it together and we're setting the same message and we're clear and we're using fact-based arguments that are based on our own experience, we can be more impactful than if we're acting alone, and so we've found some hope in coming together that way. And we need policy that helps kids. It's kind of a no-brainer, but it's true. I mean, there's been so much policy that's like kind of come out of nowhere or served a special niche. Let's get rid of all of that. And let's put a moratorium on voucher expansion until we do. Vouchers are tapping essential resources away from public schools. And until we find a way to make them fully accountable to taxpayers, we don't want to see that program expanded any further. Finally, and perhaps most importantly to many of our partners around the state, adults just need to stop playing games with kids in schools. Why is public education a partisan issue when no one really wants it to be and it shouldn't be? We, that's probably the thing I hear the most as I go around the state talking to folks. It's just like, how did this even happen? And I say, I don't know. None of us are really responsible for it, but I think we can be part of the solution in fixing it to give you some hope for where people have found successes in fighting these things at the local level. And the first is simply by staying informed. Being connected to fact-based information and knowing how to frame a message that matters is really key to making our arguments. The second thing is invest your time in building relationships. Know your school board members. Know your legislators. Let them know you. Be a person on speed dial who can be seen as a, somebody who really cares a lot, and you'd be surprised how far that goes. And I'm sure most of the people in this room probably have already taken that step. But building relationships both with people whom you agree and with whom you disagree is really going to be essential to solving this crisis. And then the other thing is getting involved. Lots of grumps in the room. I'm happy to see that. And um, we've got local groups all over Dane County, whether they're like um, standalone advocacy teams or things or groups like the Foundation for Madison Public Schools. There are all kinds of groups that are connected to our network who are engaged in various ways. And there are loads of ways you can support them. If you connect to us, you're on our mailing list. You can know of statewide events and just kind of stay in the loop. And then this is kind of a, a point that we often overlook that I want to emphasize is 
Focusing on the kids provides us an opportunity to be everyday ambassadors and to kind of live a philosophy of going out into the world and letting people know what amazing things are happening in our schools. What have you seen? What have your grandkids told you? What have teachers done in your community that have made an impact on you that you want to share out? And just amplifying those good stories in a way that helps get the message out and helps uh, people understand whether it's the person in line at the grocery store or somebody in your bridge club or wherever it is you're out and about talking to people. Let that story get out there and make it part of, of just what you do. And then totally preaching to the choir on this one, but my gosh, it's so easy to take a nonpartisan issue like public education and make it the focus of every election. And we just need to get better and better at doing that by focusing on the issue and values rather than people in politics. And then speaking up, right? Raising your voice in ways big and small. We encourage people to do everything from attending legislative advocacy workshops to writing letters to the editor or being part of events where we're really like coming together and standing as one in support of our schools. So there are public and private ways to speak out and we encourage everyone who cares about these issues to realize that the time to do so is now. Because when we stand out, we're seeing that, that courage is contagious and people are taking note of it. So the administrator in your district writes a letter to the editor, and then the next thing you know, other people are chiming in, people are standing up, and the community is kind of coming together, and we're seeing that impact. Last fall's election may not have gone the way we wanted it to go for public education voters in every race, but the people who ran were running on a pro-public message. They were using language like the public school is the heart of the community, com community on both sides of the aisle. And we weren't hearing the negative rhetoric about schools that we've heard in the past few elections. And then lo and behold, the budget was announced and it had a, a reinvestment in public schools. That's a reflection of the hard work that people are doing. So even if the budget didn't go the way we might have wanted it to, and there are um, nasty curveballs at the very end, there was a concerted effort throughout to make sure that people were coming together, getting on the same page. They had a budget message. We attended every single hearing around the state and public ed was the top focus. We wore these green shirts everywhere and it was local folks. It wasn't just me like going to everyone. I, I did go to everyone, but it wasn't just me. You know, it was we connected with the people who lived in the regions where the hearings were, and we got them out, and they told their stories, and it was a beautiful thing, and it made a huge impact. So the increase that we saw in this state's in this biennial budget is in part due to to that advocacy and people just saying not not again. So we know that local action works and that we can make an impact. And I invite all of you to connect with us in whatever ways, big or small, that you feel moved to do so that we can help together make sure that people are informed and engaged and that they know what steps that they can take to really have an impact on decision making when it comes to public education in this state. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to Crisis in Wisconsin's K-12 Education Funding, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers were Jeff Pirtle, Senior Policy Advisor for the Department of Public Instruction, and the District 17 Supervisor on the Dane County Board. Julie Mead is Professor of Education Leadership and Policy Analysis at UW-Madison. And Heather Dubois-Borinan is the Executive Director for the Wisconsin Public Education Network. 
The talk took place on October 4, 2017, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Community in Madison, and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials and handouts at the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. And to find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org.